Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Well, good afternoon, folks. Welcome aboard Afternoons on 770 CHQR. My name is Rob Breckenridge. Thanks for being with us here on this Tuesday afternoon, our number 403-974-8255. And we begin with the news today uh, that Alberta has, for now, a new justice minister. A new political headache for Premier Jason Kenney as he made the decision last night to ask Casey Madu to step aside as Justice Minister. Sonia Savage will assume those duties for the time being while maintaining her duties as Energy Minister. Now, this all follows reports that emerged last night of a phone call that took place in March of last year. Casey Madu had received a $300 ticket, a distracted driving ticket. Police alleged he was talking on his cell phone, and this occurred in a, in a school zone as well. Casey Madu, shortly after that, phoned Edmonton's police chief to discuss the matter. Now, both Madu and Edmonton's police chief uh, both say that, that Madu never asked for the ticket to be rescinded. But this is still crossing a line here. Uh, when it comes to the justice minister, the attorney general, the idea that you would get personally involved in anything that involves you like this, there's a clear conflict of interest. There's an important separation uh, that needs to occur. So I think the premier recognizes uh, that, that this cannot be defended. The premier tweeted last night, I have spoken with Minister Madu about the March 10th incident reported in the media. I conveyed to him my profound disappointment in his decision to contact the Edmonton police chief after receiving a ticket for a traffic violation. He says it's essential the independent administration of justice is maintained. That is why I will appoint a respected independent investigator to review the relevant facts and to determine whether there was interference in the administration of justice in this case. So joining us to talk about what went down here and why it's it's so serious to have a justice minister acting this way, Dwayne Bratt joins us, political science professor, Mount Royal University. Dwayne, thanks for joining us here. Welcome to the program. Good afternoon, Rob. I mean, when you first heard about this, and, and you know, assuming it was true, I mean, it, it seemed pretty obvious, I think, to you and, and other observers that like, like this is a big no-no, isn't it? Oh, almost immediately. Uh, once I, I read the story, I, I realized, like, this is a red line that you simply don't cross. And everyone knows that, which is why it is so rare. And when it does happen, uh, the minister loses their job. You can't have any minister of the crown calling a judge or a police chief, let alone the minister of justice. Um, Casey Maddow should have known that he couldn't do this. Uh, the fact that he didn't uh, is worrisome. The fact that he thought he could do it anyway is even worse. Right. And the fact that, you know, this occurred almost a year ago uh, is is interesting, too. I mean, who else knew about this in the interim? I don't know if Jason Kenny himself personally knew, but it certain, certainly appears that maybe his, his office was aware. 
Yeah, and this is a huge red flag. Like This is not something that, according to, to Don Braid, people were joking about. Like, oh, yeah, yeah, the justice minister got a ticket and called the police chief. Like, no, that's, that's pretty serious. So is the offense that he called Chief McPhee, or is the offense that people found out that he called Chief McPhee? Yeah. Let's talk about why this matters, and, and it would still be a story if this was the education minister or the labor minister, but the fact that it's the justice minister and attorney general and that, that relationship, that structure that needs to exist in our system, why is this such a red line? Well, you're talking about a power imbalance, right? The, uh, ultimately, the police chief of, of Edmonton you know, reports to the minister of justice. Um, if you look at what is going on in Lethbridge, and in fact, Madhu referenced that of the uh, of the investigations he's doing into the Lethbridge Police Service and into the Lethbridge Chief of Police, even mm-hmm. referencing that to the Edmonton Police Chief, like there's a power imbalance. So this line that Madhu and McPhee are saying is, "Oh, he didn't ask to rescind the ticket. He doesn't have to, right? Um, he's talking to." whether you want to use the term subordinate or whatever, uh, and just saying, you know, I got a ticket today uh, for something I didn't do. Uh, I think it might be racial profiling. I just want to bring it to your attention. Like, that's, that's right. pretty damning yeah. stuff. And if Maddie was correct, and if there is, like, let's say, a racial profiling problem in Edmonton, then you that involves more than just a secret one-on-one conversation with the police chief. That involves a much larger investigation, debate, discussion, and you don't wait till you're the one who gets pulled over and then you drop it. Like, that's that's pretty serious. And so to even throw that out there, um, I, I think, is, is a poor justification. Well, that's the thing. I mean, because what happened to Shannon Phillips in Lethbridge is real, right? Yeah. Uh, that the police officers there were targeting her uh, for political reasons. It's theoretically possible that you could have some some angry rogue officers in Edmonton saying this stupid justice minister, he's he's going after our, our comrades in Lethbridge. What a jerk this guy is. Let's follow him around. Let's try to find a reason to give him a ticket. Making we'll, us we'll, we'll teach him, right? mandates and all yep, sorts yep. of stuff. Yeah. So if that were happening, what's what's the way to deal with that? Well, it's not in a secret phone call, right? It is a much larger investigation of the, the police department, and, it's, and you don't um, not do anything until you're the one pulled over. Right. It seems odd. I mean, based on, on the, the, the statement from Maddie, it almost suggests like he called the police chief and said, hey, are your people targeting me as though what the, the chief's going to say, yeah, I, I guess they are. Sorry about that. I mean, what, what's going to come from that conversation, do you think? Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure what is supposed to come out of that. I'd be very curious at the conversation that occurred between the police officer when he was administering the ticket to Maddo himself. Like, right. did Maddo yeah. identify himself? He says, you know, like, do you know who I am? I'm the Minister mm-hmm. of Justice. Mm-hmm. And does the cop say yes, the Minister of Justice, who is talking on a cell phone driving through a school zone? 
It is a little ironic, I think, as a, a few people have pointed out, maybe yourself included, that we're, we're on the verge of a massive overhaul of, of how traffic tickets in Alberta are handled, that we've got this controversy involving the justice minister and a traffic ticket. At the same time, Albertans are going to lose access to traffic court to, to deal with their own tickets. What about the optics of that? Oh, I mean, there's beyond the phone call, which obviously is the most egregious part of this and, and why he had to step down. The, the issue about... Um, trying to fight a traffic ticket through calling up the police chief while you're dismantling traffic court, the very fact that you're being pulled over for distracted driving, when that's been a major communications issue that various police departments in the Justice Department in Alberta have been warning Albertans about for, for years. Um, so all of that is, is disturbing, but it's, it's the phone call itself. Which raises another interesting question here, because the Premier says he's going to appoint an independent investigator to review the relevant facts and determine whether there was interference in the administration of justice in this case. We know that the phone call took place. The Premier concedes that the phone call took place, and that's why he asked Minister Minister Madhu to, to step away from his responsibilities. What could come of this investigation that would justify putting him back as Justice Minister? So I've been thinking about that a lot. And I wonder if he's just uh, playing for time, because this is going to require a fairly large and significant cabinet shuffle. And, um, you know, because you remove the Minister of Justice by practice, uh, at least in Alberta for, I don't know, four or five decades, you need someone with legal training to be Justice Minister, unlike any other portfolio. Well, that Mm -hmm. limits your choices. Uh, then you look at, you know, uh, who is in cabinet with, with legal training. You look at who's a backbencher. He's moved Sonia Savage in, but Sonia Savage is also the energy minister. So if she becomes the permanent justice minister, then you need a new energy minister. And you pull them out of the backbenches, or do you move someone from another portfolio, and then you can just see the ricochet occurring. So I wonder if this independent investigation, given that we know, the basic facts here uh, is about time to consider a, a cabinet shuffle. I also find the competing announcements between Maddo and Kenny last night absolutely fascinating because Maddo puts out a statement where he acknowledges that he calls the police chief, says he regrets doing so, but he was upset because he was given a ticket for something he didn't do, uh, but he doesn't resign. And then an hour later, Kenny announces that he is being removed. So were they not coordinated? Wouldn't you think all day that there was discussions between Maddo and Kenny and their people in figuring out how to craft a joint message? Yes, very interesting. I guess we'll see where it all goes from here. Dwayne, appreciate your input and perspective on this. Thanks for making some time for us here. Okay, you're welcome, Rob. All the best. Uh, that is Wayne Bratz, political science professor at Mount Royal University. So interesting questions about how this all went down yesterday and what kind of communication there was between Kenny and, and Madhu. Look, I, I wouldn't be surprised if, if Kenny was, was very upset about this. Like, I don't know when Kenny knew about this, but, but let's even concede the point that he just found out about this yesterday when the story broke. He would be mad. He would be upset. Like, this isn't a problem that he wanted to have to deal with. 
And honestly, it's only a problem because the justice minister made a stupid decision. Like he didn't need to go there. And that is a, a red line for a justice minister, attorney general to do. It's not the biggest scandal in the world, but it's certainly outside the expectation of that position. And yes, ultimately, at the end of the day, uh, the independence of the administration of justice in Alberta matters. And the premier recognizes that. So I think he did the right thing here. Look, if it turns out that the premier knew about this for weeks or months, then yeah, it's a problem for Jason Kenney. But at the moment, I look at this and, and I see a premier who is forced to, to respond to a story that broke about his justice minister and a justice minister doing something inappropriate. I don't think he had any other choice. Casey Matter should have known better. So I'm not sure what he was thinking. Anyway, welcome back. Rob Riggenridge with you here on this Tuesday afternoon. Uh, Canada's economy is, is expected to continue uh, recovery in, in 2022. In fact, Alberta's uh, economy expected to lead the country. But we are still facing challenges. Certainly one of the challenges hanging over Canada's economy and other global economies is inflation. And what to do about inflation and why we're seeing it. On top of that, though, you know, as much as we've seen some uh, recovery in employment in this country, uh, we are still, at least compared to other industrialized countries, facing relatively high unemployment. And, and that's a bad combination for any economy to, to have to deal with. High inflation and high unemployment. Which brings us to the misery index. Fraser Institute, uh, with its uh, latest uh, assessment of how this is all impacting industrialized countries, Canada has the six worst six worst misery index score out of 35 industrialized countries. So what does that all mean? Well, you can read more at FraserInstitute.org. Uh, but joining us on the line to talk more about it is Jason Clements, Executive Vice President at the Fraser Institute. Again, FraserInstitute.org. Jason, thanks so much for joining us here. Welcome to the program. My pleasure. Thank you. Uh, the concept uh, of a misery index uh, was uh, something created uh, by uh, economist Arthur Oaken. Uh, but tell us a bit more about what, what we're talking about when we refer to a misery index. Sure. Uh, I mean, Oaken's idea was really to combine two different measures uh, that are not normally observed with one another, uh, that being the rate of inflation and the rate of unemployment, to get a sense of how, quote-unquote, sick or miserable the economy was. And it, it emerged in the 1970s when we started to see both high rates of inflation and high rates of unemployment. Uh, and that continued through the 80s and into the early 90s until uh, really central banks around the world, uh, through two pretty painful recessions, uh, got a handle on inflation. Um, and so, unfortunately, we're now back to something I don't think any of us thought two years ago we'd be talking about again. Mm -hmm. which is high and increasing rates of inflation and whether or not central banks are going to do what's needed and federal governments uh, do what's needed to get back to a low and stable rate of inflation, which is quite worrying in terms of the economic costs high and increasing inflation can impose on the economy and, and Canadians. What is it about these two metrics, or at least the coexistence of these two metrics, that, that is so worrisome? Well, in many ways, what, we're, what it signifies is a pretty sick, dysfunctional economy in that 
you are not only suffering from a high rate of unemployment, meaning that you've got active people who want to be in the labor market who can't secure employment or who have chosen not to secure employment at the same time that you're not producing enough goods and services relative to demand and the amount of money available in the system. Uh, moreover, there's a time issue, which is, uh, which is certainly what we saw in the 80s and 90s, which is inflation can start to build on itself. And, and that's really about people start building in expectations for three and then four and then five and higher rates of inflation. And it just feeds on itself to the point where, again, for, the, for your listeners who are old enough, uh, we went through a pretty difficult time in the 1980s and 90s getting a, a control of inflation and then enjoyed for the better part of 25 years low stable inflation, which right. served the country well, served most industrialized countries well. Um, and so, again, it, it's really thinking about what kind of an economy gets both high inflation and high unemployment. And it's not the kind of robust economy I would hope that we aspire to. Well, the unemployment rate for December was was 5.9 percent, which is pretty close to pre-pandemic levels. I think it was 5.7 percent in the last month before the pandemic. 5.9 percent, if we look back over the last 20 years in a Canadian context, is is probably on, on the low side. But I guess, are, are we comparing that to other countries? Or what is the context for describing 5.9 percent unemployment as high? Right. So there's really two things we need to consider. So one is uh, we have to standardize the unemployment rate so that it's comparable with how the other industrialized countries measure unemployment. Uh, when you do that in 2021, uh, the IMF estimates our unemployment rate at 7.7%. The, the other thing that's really important if you're looking at the unemployment rate over time in Canada is that we are experiencing the aging of the population. So as a share of the population, we have less people active in the labor force. And right now we have a number of Canadians who are opting out of the labor force. And so in my view, and I think many economists view right now, the unemployment, the Canadian stated unemployment rate is understating uh, the problem in the labor market uh, in Canada. Now, obviously, you know, we're, we're coming out of pandemic and that the pandemic has had a huge impact on on all of these these things. But that's true for every country, I guess. I mean, Canada is not unique in having gone through this. So countries that are seeing lower rates of inflation or lower unemployment, they've also had to deal with the pandemic. So, I mean, how, how relevant is it as a factor in assessing what it is that, that Canada is dealing with at the moment? Yeah, I think that's a really important question because part of what we're being told repeatedly, uh, at least from the federal government, is that inflation is not a Canadian problem. It's a global problem. And there, there is some truth to that. I mean, global supply chains have clearly been disrupted. But the flip side of that is Canada has the fourth highest inflation rate within the 35 industrialized countries. So of those countries, we are at the, the far end of experiencing relatively higher rates uh, of inflation. And again, when, when you look at other countries, and I mean, you know, many of these countries, uh, for example, uh, the Netherlands, their expected unemployment rate is 3.6%. So less than half our unemployment rate. Their inflation rate is about two thirds our expected inflation rate. And importantly, many of the countries that are doing fairly well on the misery index, uh, that is the combination of your unemployment rate and uh, your inflation rate is that their inflation rate is not trending upwards. 
And unfortunately for the United States and Canada, our inflation rate is trending upwards. And in fact, there was a story today about the Department of Finance uh, issuing some warnings to the government that people's expectations are starting to change. And that's a real risk going forward for inflation if people start to expect higher rates of inflation. Well, we look at this, you know, the, the graph here. We've got Japan uh, with the best score. You mentioned Netherlands. They're right up there. Czech Republic, Israel, Germany uh, economy is doing relatively well, even even the U.K. Uh, and then uh, we've got Canada, Sweden, Iceland, Italy, Greece and Spain at, at the bottom with the worst scores. Spain has, has the worst overall. So when you mentioned the Netherlands, or we look at Japan or we look at Switzerland or, or even Germany. What, what can we learn from the, these other countries? What are they doing right right now? So yeah, I, I would think I would say there's really two things. So one is they are spending less money than Canada is to continue to support people not to work. Now, that's about getting the balance right. You know, I mean, clearly there are Canadians right now who need to focus on loved ones who are at risk from COVID, continue to be at risk. The question is, are we getting the balance right? And when we look at other countries, what the data is telling us is we're probably on the far end of supporting more people than needs to be supported in terms of not being in the labor market. So, and, and remember, part of that important point of the labor market is the, the ultimate problem with inflation is we have too much money chasing too few goods and services. Right. Getting more people back into the labor market helps not only with our spending, but it also helps with uh, getting more people to produce goods and services. I think the second thing is the amount of government spending and borrowing, uh, particularly, that's being financed by central banks. Um, Europe and the United States uh, and Canada have all been in the same boat where we've had central banks financing government debt. The question now is the degree to which those central banks are starting to curtail their support for government debt and forcing governments to go to the open market to finance debt. Uh, thankfully, I think the Bank of Canada has done some changes. I think it needs to do much more, and I think it needs to be much clearer uh, about its resolve in reducing inflation down to the target rate of below 2%. Well, it's interesting because it, it seems like these are two different problems that require different responses, like higher interest rates might curtail inflation. Higher interest rates aren't necessarily going to reduce the unemployment rate. But, I mean, are, are there policies that, that do actually address both? I think you alluded to well, it in terms of, of spending, for example. Yeah, I, I mean, I think one of the problems right now is clearly that the federal government has signaled and has consistently signaled it is disinterested in balancing the budget. It's disinterested in providing a clear path to a balanced budget. It wants to spend more and finance that through debt. And so that sends a signal that this level of spending is going to continue. That level of spending is going to be financed by more Bank of Canada money, which means yet more money chasing the same or less goods and services. That affects our expectations about inflation. And so when the federal government releases its budget in February or March, I think an important test is going to be, is there any interest or resolve by the federal government in moving towards a balanced budget, getting back to living within our means, or at the very least saying, look, if, if you want these new programs and expanded programs, 
we have to hi- we have to increase the GST or we have to increase personal income taxes because you need to pay for them, as opposed to saying these things are free because we're just going to borrow, uh, we're going to borrow the money to pay for them. So I think that's an immediate. We're going to see the federal government's uh, policy within the next two months, and then as I said, the Bank of Canada needs to continue to cur- curtail. Pardon me its financing of government debt. So just as as an example, uh, just uh, for your listeners, if you go to the December statistics for the Bank of Canada, um, the uh, current long-term debt that's being held by the Bank of Canada from the government of Canada is $435 billion. That's the amount of federal long-term debt that is being financed by the Bank of Canada. If you go pre-pandemic, the Bank of Canada was holding about $76 billion. That, that's an extraordinary increase in the amount of financing that the Bank of Canada has provided versus the open market. And so I think there, the sooner that the Bank of Canada curtails the financing of government debt, uh, I think it will send, again, signals to Canadians that it has clear resolve to get inflation under control and back to under the band of 2%. People can uh, see the Misery Index for themselves much more at FraserInstitute.org, and I guess we'll see where things are at a year from now. But, Jason, thanks so much for making some time for us here today. Really appreciate this. My pleasure. Thank you so much. All the best. That is Jason Clemens, Executive Vice President at the Fraser Institute, FraserInstitute.org. So the Misery Index, it's like golf. The lower your score, the better. And right now Canada's uh, well over par, let's put it that way with the sixth worst score on this misery index, behind only Spain, Greece, Italy, Iceland, and Sweden. At the top of the charts, you got Japan, Switzerland, Singapore, Andorra, Taiwan, Netherlands, Slovenia, Korea, Czech Republic. Off the top of this hour, though, I want to talk about the public broadcaster, the CBC. And obviously, we've spent a lot of time talking about the CBC, its culture, its... Uh, editorial uh, content, whether there's bias at CBC, whether the CBC needs to change, how much money the CBC should receive, all of these questions uh, frequently come up. There's a broader question, I guess, of public broadcasting. What does public broadcasting mean? What does it entail? What do we want it to be? To what extent should a public broadcaster be mirroring or even competing with private broadcasters? Look, if you've got in a city like Edmonton or Calgary three private broadcasters doing a 6 o'clock newscast, do we really need to spend money in having the CBC doing a fourth? Those kinds of questions. Should the CBC focus on doing things that the private broadcasters aren't doing? The other big question, should the CBC be competing for advertising revenue with the private broadcasters? Well, this is something the Liberal government wants the CBC to move away on. As reported in the National Post, the Liberals have promised $400 million over four years to make the CBC less reliant on advertising and are aiming to ensure the public broadcaster's programming is more distinct from its private sector competition. Joining us to talk more about uh, this new mandate, what it might look like, what it should look like, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, uh, Peter Menzies, National Newspaper Award-winning journalist, senior fellow of the McDonald-Laurier Institute, past editor-in-chief of the Calgary Herald, and a former vice chair at the CRTC. Peter, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Hey, thank you. It's a uh, pleased to be here. So when it comes to the public broadcaster and, and what it should look like, does, does this new approach from the Liberals, does, is it taking us in the right direction, do you think? 
I think it's a good step in the right direction. The CBC yeah. is right now a kind of hybrid public broadcaster slash commercial broadcaster. And I think that causes a great deal of confusion over its its core purpose. I think uh, stepping forward to, I mean, I'm a big fan of having CBC completely out of the advertising business um, and making it into a, a fully public broadcaster in the same way its radio division currently is. So that would give it a clarity of purpose and allow it to focus its energies on being good at being a public broadcaster and get out of the way of uh, the other side of things. Do you think that has to mean more funding? I mean, obviously, if the ad revenue goes away, that's that's a reduction of what the CBC has to spend. But the CBC does receive a, a pretty healthy subsidy each year from the federal government. Does the additional $400 million over four years, do you think it's it's necessary? I don't think it's unreasonable, um, mm-hmm. given that they'd be giving up. I think they're taking in about $270 million a year right now in advertising. Um, there'd be some cost saving by not having to have an advertising division. I mean, right now they've launched a, a whole branded content division and that sort of thing. They're operating in two languages. They've got CBC North to operate, which is incredibly um, challenging. And uh, no, it, it doesn't drive me crazy. I mean, it'll drive all my conservative friends crazy to hear me say that. <laughs> but it, uh, you know, to be practical. If you want a, if you're going to have a good public broadcaster, there's a certain amount of money that you have to spend, and I don't think that's out of whack when you compare it to the sort of financing other countries like France, Britain, uh, Germany um, supply to their public broadcaster. Well, I, I mean, mean, BBC, that mean yeah. that there aren't efficiencies that can't right. be found. Heaven knows there are. I mean, Britain has the BBC model. The U.S. has the PBS model. Those are very two very different approaches to, to public broadcasting. What, what should Canada's look like? I think it should look much more like the European um, and even South American. I mean, if you look worldwide, there are, I mean, PBS is really exceptional. The American broadcasting model is one that works for them. Um, they started with commercial broadcasting. Most countries... Actually, when they started broadcasting, it was pretty much their public broadcaster that started things going. Um, and part of that was, you know, to try to uh, control the system for sure. But part of it was to, uh, you know, use it for, you know, the, the core purpose of the CBC, which is, you know, if you go into their mandate, it's really to inform Canadians about their country. Right. And uh, yeah. if you are, if you get out of the advertising business and you become a 100 percent Canadian content provider, you you take a weight off the private regular uh, industry in a way um, that's that's quite useful. I mean, if you look at radio, they have no advertising at all. They goofed around with trying to get it on CBC uh, Radio 2 for a bit, but their audience hated it um, and they couldn't find any money anyway. But I mean, they they do very well in most major markets across the country in terms of their morning show. Um, they're market leaders. They're number one or number two. But it doesn't disrupt the, the radio market because, as you know, I mean, radio markets are really fragmented. Being number one or number two just means you've got eight or nine percent of the market, right? And yeah. you leave the rest of the market uh, to the private sector and you leave 100 percent of the money, which yeah. is uh, really what the private sector market, uh, radio broadcasters and others are 
need. Which begs the question then of, of content. Like, should the CBC be developing content that it thinks Canadians want to see? Or should the focus be, what are the stories that aren't being told? Like, what are the private broadcasters doing? And we'll focus on things they aren't doing. How, how do they decide on you know, what stories to tell, what that Canadian content should look like? Well, that gets really tricky. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's a great risk that it just becomes, you know, self-indulgent, right? Mm. And you just get a series of endless, you know, if you go to public affairs content, you could just get a series of, of endless thumb suckers on, you know, <laughs> wither Canada, um, yeah. you know, uh, wither Quebec, you know, existentialist angst and, and all that sort of stuff. And it becomes, uh, it, it, it is not serving audiences. You can argue that it is, but it's spinach, right? Or broccoli. So you have to have some performance indicators built in there um, in terms of audience attraction so that you, I mean, like, it's like any, any, any news type enterprise. Um, and broadcasting is kind of interesting because, you know, in radio, you have specific news networks uh, or, or, or broadcasters like yourself um, and, and news and talk. And others are primarily in television, as has always been, except for news channels, which are fairly recent, an entertainment medium with news added. So there's opportunity for CBC to be an entertainment medium, um, and you would have to put metrics in there that uh, that managers have to meet. That's the best way you can motivate that is you'd have to have certain audience engagement metrics in there. So you were, you know informing people at the level that you that uh, that that you believe is necessary it's also the question of, of serving underserved communities in in canada and i mean there are certainly parts of canada where you know the only radio station you're, you're going to be able to tune into is is the cbc and i do wonder if we need more of that approach you know in, in alberta we used to have uh you know tv stations in places like red deer and medicine hat you'd have a six o'clock newscast in in those those markets you no longer do could the CBC refocus itself to to fill some of those kinds of voids, do you think? Yeah, I think you're bang on there. I think it, it would be very important for a refreshed CBC to really focus again on its core mandate, which isn't building big audiences and attractive advertising markets like the GTA. It's actually getting out there and serving smaller centers like that. And having a great, having a good news flow across the country and having a mandate where people in Alberta are actually finding out what went on in Nova Scotia today and vice versa, and people in Toronto are actually finding out what's going on in Canada today. Um, if, you're, if your primary focus is just on building audiences, you're going to focus on the major markets, particularly for advertising. You're going to focus on the GTA. Um, I mean, you're going to have to do that anyway. There's nothing right. wrong with that in a sense. But when you're doing it to the exclusion of having a... a a, a public that from coast to coast understands each other and knows what's going on and, and gets a hold of differing perspectives. Uh, you're only going to do that by having boots on the ground in Red Deer and Fort McMurray and, uh, you know, uh, Prince Albert and, and places like that and, and the far north. Interesting to see what uh, this modernization ultimately looks at. Uh, Peter, appreciate your perspective on all this. Thanks so much for joining us here. Okay, thanks. Have fun. All the best. Cheers. Uh, that is Peter Menzies, a former vice chair of the CRTC, um, former uh, editor-in-chief of the Calgary Herald, and uh, he's a senior fellow at the McDonald laurier Institute. So it's easy enough to look at the dollars here. 
the Liberals want the CBC to run fewer ads, and they promise an additional $400 million over four years to make up for that. So that's easier to quantify. But the idea that the CBC start doing programming that is more distinct from what the private sector is doing, what does that look like? Right, so when we talk about Canadian content, there are very different forms of Canadian content. There's the, the sitcoms or the dramas that air on the CBC, and then there's the news side of things. Both are Canadian content, but it's a very different way of, of focusing on Canadian issues, telling Canadian stories. So what does the CBC need to focus on? What do we want it to be? Do we want it at all? All right, welcome back. Uh, I mean, you know, it's no secret uh, gasoline prices have been have been high, have sort of relatively stable, I guess. But uh, when we saw oil prices jump last year, we saw gasoline prices do the same. And it doesn't look like uh, those are coming down anytime soon. We've seen some slight fluctuation, but uh, we're definitely paying more for gasoline. And some new research from the School of Public Policy at the University of Calgary suggests that we should expect more of the same. So what is driving the, the price of gasoline here? Obviously, the crude oil price is a big factor, but there are other factors as well uh, that go into determining what the price of gasoline is going to be. So what do we make of some of the volatility we've seen? What do we make of the higher prices? What might 2022 have in store for us? Now, joining us to talk a bit more about this uh, report is one of its authors. Gregory Galay is a postdoctoral associate at the University of Calgary and joins us uh, on the line here this afternoon. Gregory, good to have you with us. Welcome to the program. Hello, and thank you for having me. When we talk about gasoline prices, I mean, we make the obvious connection uh, to oil prices. Oil prices are up. We, we look at gasoline prices, and, and we, we see a link, and obviously there is a link. But what are some of the other factors, though, that go into determining what the price of gasoline is going to be? Uh, well, obviously, the the price of crude oil is the biggest determinant in in the price of gas that we pay at the pumps. It makes up, you know, roughly fifty percent of those costs that we pay at the pump, and a lot of the volatility is dry, driven by the volatility in, in you know global crude oil prices. But there are other factors that come into play uh, for the price that we pay at the pump, and some of those include refining costs and transportation costs to get the market, uh, you know, to refine the crude oil into a product that we can use and put into our cars, as well as transport it from, you know, the production regions to the consumption regions. And that, that plays a big part uh, in the cost of uh, gasoline that we pay. So, you know, in Vancouver, because of constraints and pipeline capacity and right. the ability to transport, you know, crude by rail, uh, you were seeing a very big increase in the price of, uh, of crude oil in, in that region. What about the impact of, of taxes and, and other government policies? How much does, does that affect the price? That has, uh, you know, a fairly large uh, impact, or not a fairly large impact, I should say, maybe... Um, 25 to 35 percent on the price of uh, of price of gasoline. However, those are you know a little bit more steady. There hasn't been many uh, changes in in taxes over you know the last year that would have driven 
increases in the cost of, of gasoline at the pump. So, you know, it, it, it is, you know, significant, 25 to 35%, but it's not, there's not many fluctuations over over this time period, over the last year, where we saw a big increase from, you know, the beginning of the pandemic when prices kind of bottomed out uh, to where we've been the last couple months with the higher prices. Yeah, I mean, I, I think we all remember that in, you know, March and April and May of 2020. I mean, you know, the prices uh, had, had reached some some pretty shocking lows, prices we hadn't seen in years. Uh, does it appear that for the mm-hmm. most part, then, gasoline prices have returned to pre-pandemic levels? Uh, yes, they have. It's, uh, part, of, part of it has been declining inventories over the last, last few months as a result of uh, issues relating to production and uh, shutdowns because of, of uh, COVID, as well as um, decisions by OPEC Plus to kind of maintain their production targets uh, and kind of keeping prices where they're at uh, currently. What about on the refining side? And, and you know, refineries do have, especially when the price of oil is higher, relatively thin margins. Is is that the reality right now on the refining side? Uh, there's the refining margins have been fairly steady over the last few months. Um, you know, the spread. Uh, for Vancouver has increased a little bit, but, uh, you know, in other regions in Canada, the, the refining margin has st- stayed pretty constant. So those increase in costs have just been kind of passed straight on through to the consumer. I mean, I suppose soon enough we'll, we'll be talking about the summer driving season. I mean, I don't anticipate that, that demand is going down this year. It doesn't appear as though crude prices are going down this year. I mean, should we expect steady or even potentially higher prices through this year? Uh, I think, uh, given the, also the recent announcement from OPEC Plus, um, that we should expect prices to kind of stay uh, where they have been over, you know, December and so far into January. Um, you know, there is some time um, for maybe some production to pick up, but uh, it's looking likely that prices will remain fairly constant. And then as demand picks back up, as Hopefully, you know, the Omicron wave begins to die down and economic activities will pick up again. Uh, prices may increase in, into the summer, yes. But, uh, yeah. you know, it's hard to say exactly how much uh, they will increase by. Well, we'll leave it there for now. More at uh, policyschool.ca. Gregory, thanks for joining us here this afternoon. Appreciate right. it. Thank you for having Take me. Take care. Uh, Gregory Galay, postdoctorate fellow at the uh, University of Calgary, co-author of this uh, piece. Again, you can find it at policyschool.ca on what's driving the cost of driving. As they say, wholesale gasoline prices depend on two primary factors, crude oil prices and refining and transportation margins. Retail prices are dependent on wholesale prices and two additional factors, taxes and marketing margins. So the situation right now, and it's all adding up to higher prices for consumers, and that's likely to remain the case for for this year. Again, I mean, that's that's contingent on, on a few things, and it's hard to predict the uh, the trajectory of the pandemic, which has uh, wreaked havoc on all of this, but that's that's what things are looking like right now. Now, obviously, as a, an energy-producing province, we do benefit from all of this. It's going to be really interesting to see what the numbers look like in the budget that the uh, Alberta government's going to table in the spring. And based on where, where oil is at, what the future markets suggest it'll be at, we could see a balanced budget for 
which is quite fascinating. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770chqr.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.